It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, torture, cruelty to animals, psychological abuse, and violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. March 1928. Frances Turner was in terrible, constant pain. She could not speak. She suffered frequent choking and coughing spells and was almost completely paralyzed. Her sister, Margaret Sands, begged Mother May to cure Frances of her ailments. Finally, the mother of the Blackburn cult agreed. Frances was brought to a hillside overlooking the cult's compound in beautiful Simi Valley. There, May Otis Blackburn revealed to Frances the device that was to provide her cure, a massive brick oven, heated until it was searing hot. Frances was placed inside the oven as May stood at a short distance. At first, Frances appeared to be choking, but very soon she fell silent. Her sister Margaret waited for her to spring up, healthy and renewed, but no such resurrection ever occurred. Within the hour, Francis was dead. May told Margaret that it was not meant to be, that Francis had not been worth saving. The angel Gabriel had wanted it this way. In reality, Francis had been unable to scream or struggle due to her disabilities. As her sister and May Blackburn looked on, Francis had been broiled to death. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults on the Parcast Network. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. Today, we're continuing our deep dive into the Blackburn Cult, also known as the Divine Order of the Royal Arms of the Great Eleven, founded by May Otis Blackburn and her daughter, Ruth Wieland Rickenbaugh Rizzio. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Cults, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. The Blackburn Cult was active in Southern California between 1922 and 1929. During that time, May and her daughter Ruth defrauded their followers out of more than $300,000, the equivalent of more than $4 million today. At the cult's 164-acre compound in Simi Valley, California, May and Ruth forced about 100 followers to participate in bizarre rituals called concords, which included giving all their income and worldly possessions to the cult. 
May and Ruth claimed to be in constant communication with the angel Gabriel, who was dictating to them a holy book. Once finished, this book would reveal the location of all the world's hidden treasures, including oil, gold, and gemstones. They also claimed the publication of this book would usher in the apocalypse, after which the cult's 11 queens would rule the world from 11 marble palaces in Hollywood. Last week, we dug into the early lives of May Otis Blackburn and her daughter Ruth Wieland Rickenbaugh Rizzio. We learned that May in particular had a long history of separating her friends and lovers from their money. This week, we'll dive into the rapid rise, the heyday, and the shocking fall of the Blackburn cult, as well as the horrific deaths of many of the cult's followers. Followers like Willa Rhodes, who died on New Year's Day 1925, and whose mummified remains would stay in the basement for years. In November of 1924, William Rhodes, his wife Martha, and their adopted daughter Willa left Oregon to join the Blackburn cult in Los Angeles. May took to 15-year-old Willa quickly. She was so fond of her that she named her as one of the cult's great 11 queens. May even granted Willa the title of the Tree of Life, making her incredibly important within the cult's theology. May's mother, Jenny, who was involved with the cult, also developed an affection for Willa and began doting on her like a daughter. In December of 1924, Jenny bought Willa seven puppies as a gift. Because the seven notes of the musical scale played a huge part in the cult's theology, Willa named them after the scales, Do, Re, Mi, Fa, So, La, Ti. Then, around Christmas 1924, Willa developed a pain in her tooth. Her mother, Martha, a Christian science believer, did not consult a doctor or dentist, even after Willa remained in bed for days. In accordance with her religious beliefs, Martha only used prayer and faith healing techniques on her daughter. A week later, on New Year's Eve, Willa seemed to miraculously improve. She got out of bed and got dressed. It seemed as though Martha's prayers were answered. But on New Year's Day, 1925, Willa relapsed. She collapsed in agony as throbbing pain shot up through the side of her face. The girl asked to see her mother and father, as well as another woman in the Divine Order named Dora. Willa told them that she loved them through gritted teeth. Then, as suddenly as she had fallen ill, she passed away as her parents and Dora prayed over her. It's unclear what exactly Willa died of, but her death upset May even more than it did Martha. She was paralyzed with grief. The only thing that finally forced her to carry on and improvise was the troubling fact that one of the great eleven had just died. Not a great look for a cult that promised immortality. Thinking on her feet, May told Willa's parents and Dora that God still had use for Willa. She convinced Martha that Willa would be raised from the dead. As soon as May published her cult's theological treatise, The Sixth Seal, Thus, the Rhodes shouldn't turn her body over to the authorities. But they had to keep this a secret. No one else in the cult could know of her death. Instead of burying their daughter, Martha and William placed her in a bathtub full of ice and prepared to protect her body until God saw it fit to resurrect her. May then ordered her followers to kill all seven of Willa's puppies with chloroform and place them next to her frozen body. Willa's body was moved to her sleeping chambers in secret. 
May and the Rhodes told the other followers that the future queen of the Divine Order had left town, and she would return just before the apocalypse. Of course, May would never really have let one of her followers leave the cult. May viewed her followers as property. They were forced to turn over all their money to her. If one of her devotees happened to own a business, May would treat it like her own, expecting free goods and services on demand. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here. A quick reminder, she's not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. According to Sarah Newman, managing editor of Psych Central, people like May wish to control others because they fear abandonment and have no secure relationships in their own lives. By the time May was a cult leader, she had been abandoned by one husband, disappointed by the next, and the only man she seemed to genuinely love was married and unavailable. She likely asserted so much control over her followers as a way to build secure relationships. If she controlled the followers, she couldn't be left behind. Probably for this reason, May only ever considered letting a follower leave the cult after she was sure she'd drained them of everything they could possibly offer their money, their connections, and their professional skills alike. Which brings us to Clifford Dabney, a wealthy Los Angeles oilman and one of May's unlikeliest followers. Clifford was the nephew of the famous philanthropic and incredibly rich oil prospector J.B. Dabney, whose name still graces the California Institute of Technology's Dabney Hall of the Humanities and Dabney House. According to the book Cult of the Great Eleven by Samuel Fort, J.B. brought his nephew into the oil business in 1920. Clifford was 29 at the time. And like most oil men at the time, Clifford was soon very wealthy. Unfortunately, he also developed an ego that matched his overstuffed wallet. In November of 1924, then 33-year-old Clifford and his wife, Alice Dabney, ran into someone who knew exactly how to exploit an inflated ego— May Otis Blackburn. Through Alice, May soon found herself enthusiastically describing to Clifford the divine book May and Ruth planned to publish. This book went by several titles, but the two most common were The Seventh Trumpet of St. Gabriel and The Great Sixth Seal. May and Ruth didn't need to be consistent about how they talked about their book. After all, they never intended to finish it. According to the cult's theology, the publication of the book would be the first step in a series of apocalyptic events that would transform the cult's queens into rulers of the world and its followers into celestial beings with superpowers. Not to mention, the book was supposed to reveal the location of all the world's hidden reserves of oil, gold, and gemstones. So if they actually finished the book, May and Ruth would be on the hook to deliver a cave of wonders. It's easy to see why they were in no hurry to finish. Clifford Dabney, of course, didn't know the book was a fraud, when in November of 1924, May Otis Blackburn asked him for $5,000 towards its publication. $5,000, or about $73,000 today, was a fortune for most people. But at the peak of Clifford's oil leasing career, it was table scraps. If he lost the money, he wouldn't miss it. And if May came through, he would not only be tremendously rich, but also immortal. He donated the $5,000 plus an extra $500 in cash in order to receive concords for himself and his wife. Concord was a word that May confusingly used as a catch-all term to describe rituals within the cult. 
In this context, a concord was a special title given to a follower by the divine voices in May's head, in exchange for a generous donation, of course. The angel Gabriel was a shrewd businessman. Clifford received the concord, the hereafter and now, while his wife Alice received the concord, the holy keystone. At first, Clifford viewed his relationship with the cult merely as a business arrangement. They would give him occasional progress reports and eventually deliver a divine book. But within weeks of his first exposure to May's flattery and manipulation, Dabney was sucked into the cult. It would eventually consume his life, his savings, and his dignity. According to Dr. Margaret Singer in an interview with the New York Times, a wide variety of personality types can be sucked into cults. She writes that cult recruitment uses a process similar to the brainwashing techniques used on POWs during the Korean War. Anyone can fall victim to these tactics, particularly if they're experiencing some sort of psychological vulnerability, such as loneliness. We don't know what was happening in Clifford Dabney's life when he first came into May's orbit. But he certainly wasn't the only one in Los Angeles falling prey to cultists at the time. Throughout the 1920s, more than 400 cults operated in Los Angeles, drawing in an estimated 200,000 followers among them. The atmosphere was ripe for predators like May to strike. And in true form, May got to work manipulating Clifford. She told him she hoped to publish The Great Sixth Seal on February 6th, 1925. That date was no coincidence. It was the same day that another, much more prominent cult leader had predicted the apocalypse. Margaret Rowan, a well-known prophetess within the Reformed Seventh-day Adventist Church, told her followers they would hear Gabriel's trumpet announce the return of Christ at midnight on February 6th. May was a little more vague. She told her followers that a new era would begin on February 6th. By leaving her prognostication open-ended, she left herself room to claim that the divine events of February 6th had indeed occurred, but gone unnoticed by the masses. In early 1925, Margaret Rowan came to the attention of local police when she urged her approximately 1,000 followers to sell all their belongings and come to Los Angeles to witness the second coming of Christ. The police immediately began to suspect Rowan of fraud, so when word reached the Los Angeles City Prosecutor's Office that there was a second woman preaching a February apocalypse, an investigation into the Blackburn cult was launched. Meanwhile, February 6th came and went, and the world did not end. As a result, Ruth was available when the cops picked her up that day for questioning in regards to a pamphlet the Blackburn cult had been circulating. The city prosecutor was particularly interested in how May and Ruth were supporting themselves. They were living in a very expensive neighborhood and operating a small publishing company, but neither had a job or inheritance. Prosecutors were concerned that May and Ruth might be scamming their followers. Ruth stayed silent until she could confer with her mother. To pacify authorities, she agreed not to distribute her pamphlets further. She also agreed to cooperate with future interviews. But after Ruth left the station, she and May hatched a plan for handling those follow-up questions. It required convincing people of a highly improbable story. But that was, after all, what the two cult queens did best. In a moment, May unearthed some buried treasure. Now, back to the story. 
In February 1925, a few days after Ruth was questioned by police, local newspapers reported a mysterious metal box had been found in Topanga Canyon. It contained love letters from Fremont Everett, May's wealthy lover back in Portland. Also in the box, $100,000 in securities, about $1.4 million today. It seemed rather convenient that May would unearth a massive amount of money just as police were snooping around her finances. May gave an interview to the Oakland Tribune, claiming that after her affair with Everett ended in 1918, she, brokenhearted, had buried the box of letters in Topanga Canyon. Of course, it doesn't take much guesswork to figure out that May had only buried the box herself a few days prior, then arranged for a follower to find it. Ruth and May then told the city prosecutor that their money came entirely from Fremont and that only some of the money had been buried with the box. But this created a new problem. Authorities worried that Fremont Everett might be being blackmailed. The 60-year-old lumber tycoon denied any involvement with May whatsoever and repeatedly said he was not being blackmailed. His friends backed him up in an interview with the Santa Ana Register, saying Fremont was not the type to get mixed up in any love affairs. The authorities were stymied. They still suspected the cultists were defrauding their followers. But authorities were unable to charge the Blackburn cult founders with any crime. Eventually, the city prosecutor's office decided to drop their investigation into the Blackburn cult. Besides, law enforcement had bigger fish to fry. The Roaring Twenties was an era of cultural upheaval, including a decline in traditional religion. Young people flooded into Los Angeles, seeking spiritual renewal. They rejected their parents' attachment to organized religion, but in doing so became unusually vulnerable to the region's more than 400 organized cults. Much like the one run by May and Ruth, who soon returned to business as usual, demanding money from their followers for the publication of a non-existent book. In May of 1925, the Divine Order relocated to a house at 2327 Main Street in the Ocean Park neighborhood of Santa Monica. The home was a generous donation to the Blackburn cult by cult follower Mary Stewart, who lived next door. Mary Stewart also gave the cult a second, separate house around the corner at 219 Hollister Street for May Otis Blackburn to use as her personal residence. The big move meant moving the body of Willa Rhodes who was still on ice in an upstairs bedroom. May had William Rhodes dig a secret cellar behind the Main Street house, just large enough to fit Willa's body in a bathtub. But moving her presented a few problems. Most of the cult had no idea that they had been living with a corpse. They still thought Willa was alive and out of town. May and the Rhodes family worked together to move Willa and her seven puppies under the cover of darkness. They stashed the bodies in the hidden chamber behind the Main Street house. The only person who ever raised suspicions was the ice delivery man, who found it odd that the single household required 600 pounds of ice per week. Willa Rhodes' body rested peacefully underground for a precious few months, from May of 1925 to February of 1926. But she was again disturbed in February when, out of the blue, May Otis Blackburn ordered William and Martha Rhodes to purchase a residence at 1094 Marco Place in Venice, California. May told them that the Divine had ordained they buy it, so Willa could be temporarily interred there. It seems May was tired of having a frozen body in the backyard. 
or perhaps 600 pounds of ice each week at Stranger Budget. So William Rhodes and another trusted cult member, Floyd Miller, dug under the floorboards of the Venice Cottage. They constructed an elaborate wood-paneled crawl space. They also dug two graves for two coffins, one for Willa and the other for her seven puppies, into the floor of the crawl space. The coffins were lowered into the ground uncovered so that Willa and her puppies could get out. While the men worked, Martha Rhodes prepared Willa's body for its temporary interment. She purchased various herbs, spices, and ointments at the local pharmacy, recreating an ancient formula for embalming the dead. Martha told other cult members that Willa would be embalmed in the same way Jesus Christ had been. Martha used her embalming potions all over Willa's skin, but she apparently didn't realize that most embalming processes include preservation of the internal organs as well. So Willa's skin did not decay after the ice was removed, but her internal organs putrefied. On February 10, 1926, Willa was placed in a coffin with her knees drawn up to her chest and her hands crossed over them. Her puppies were wrapped in white sheets and placed in the second coffin beside her. They lowered both coffins into the crawlspace floor. Then, Willa's parents finished moving their belongings and furniture into the cabin overhead. Until the end of the world, they planned to live in the Venice cottage above their daughter's slowly decaying corpse. Meanwhile, Clifford Dabney, still blissfully unaware of these morbid practices, was anxious to obtain divine powers. So when May came to him in autumn of 1926 with another big request, he was eager to earn her favor. On May's orders, Clifford purchased 10 lots in Simi Valley, in the Mortimer Park area. Although the 10 lots combined for a total of 164 acres, it wasn't as lavish a bequest as it might seem. In fact, the land was so rocky and hilly, it was considered essentially worthless. May, on the other hand, thought it was perfect. She ordered most of her followers to join her at the new compound, although it's unclear how many people that would account for. We estimate around 100 based on some cult records from around that time. They were each to build their own cabins on 40-foot by 60-foot parcels doled out by May. Not only did she use unqualified, unpaid labor to build the cabins, May stole the wood. It was purchased on credit from the Hammond Lumber Company and never paid for. The Blackburn cult called their new compound The Work, short for The Work of God. While they built their cabins, members lived in tents under miserable conditions. There was no electricity, heat, or running water. There were no roads to the compound. Getting supplies meant hiking out of the hills. May's followers were forced to trudge for miles for water. They carried lumber through the hills by hand. Their first winter was miserable as they braved the cold without heat. But all the while, they continued to make progress on May's vision. By early 1927, they had constructed a beautiful temple, white in the shape of a crescent. Called the Golden Throne Temple, it did indeed contain a golden throne. Weighing in at a whopping 500 pounds, the throne required eight men to carry it inside. Below the cabins and temple were accommodations for livestock, mostly horses and mules. Some of these were intended as blood sacrifices. One thing the compound didn't feature was a home for May. She had no intention of spending cold winters with her followers. She and her family lived in Burbank. 
But that didn't stifle further plans for the work. May wanted a swimming pool, a tennis court, and a vast printing facility with the capacity to print a copy of The Great Sixth Seal for every human on Earth. She also wanted a building called the Great Argumental Parlor of Interview of the World, where May would ideally host debates among learned people regarding her book. May must have thought she'd eventually attract lots of rich supporters, like Clifford Dabney, whose fortunes would be dedicated to her mission. Instead, he remained the most wealthy member ever to join the Blackburn cult. As for Clifford Dabney himself, May spent a great deal of time with him. She flattered him with personal attention on some days, then ignored him on others. This pattern of variable reinforcement made Dabney desperate for May's approval. He constantly suggested ways he could help her and begged her to accelerate his transformation into a divine being in return. He soon became May's right-hand man and loyal servant. Mr. Dabney also suggested that May incorporate the cult as a business. This would make it easier for the cult to own property, pay taxes, and run subsidiary businesses, such as their printing press. Dabney was still expecting the cult to have to deal with a huge influx of profits whenever the Great Sixth Seal was published. Thus, in July of 1927, the Great Eleven was incorporated with Mr. Clifford Dabney as its corporate president. This prominent role made it even harder for him to ever distance himself from the organization. It also allowed May to hide her activities behind his stellar reputation as a local businessman. However, the news was not well received in the ranks of the Blackburn cult. Not everyone liked Dabney, who thought himself better than his fellow members. He did, after all, get some special privileges as president. For one thing, he was privy to a secret part of May's plan. She was going to construct huge refrigeration units at the cult's compound and use them to store dead cultists until the apocalypse and resurrection. However, even after May fed him those few breadcrumbs, Clifford kept demanding new secrets of the divine. May would grow enraged, swearing at him and even tearing out her own hair. Clifford would then threaten to withdraw his money from the cause. Sometimes this would produce new secrets for Clifford. More often, he went away empty-handed. In retrospect, it's obvious May was using her temper to keep Clifford under her thumb. If she reacted with anger and hysterics when he demanded occult knowledge, he would be more likely to value the secrets he did extract from her. It worked for a time. Clifford kept pouring money into May's cause. May took over $45,000 from him over the years, more than $635,000 today. Dr. Yanya Lalich, a professor emerita of sociology at California State University, Chico, writes that charismatic cult leaders are authoritarian bullies that rule through coercion. And to receive constant adulation from their followers, the leader must be entertaining. This often comes at the expense of their followers, as charismatic cult leaders bully, mock, and cast aside anyone who is not sufficiently adoring. This causes the remaining members to flock to the side of the leader, competing to be in their inner circle. Dabney was in that inner circle for a time. But on July 31, 1927, he got the rudest wake-up call of his life. According to Cult of the Great Eleven, it came in the form of an auto repair bill for $191.07. Dabney didn't have the money. $191.07. 
The equivalent of about $2,700 in today's money would be a steep sum for most men, but for Dabney, it should have been pocket change. He was one of Southern California's most successful oil men. He once thought nothing of throwing away a few thousand dollars on a lark. And now he was flat broke. May Otis Blackburn had built Dabney of almost everything. He had one oil lease left, worth $18,000, which he'd kept secret from May. It paid him $400 per month, about $5,800 today. A decent income for many people, but a far cry from his old lifestyle. Ashamed, Dabney left the Franklin Motor Company without paying his bill. He returned to the work and resigned his post as president of the Blackburn Cult Corporation. Then he marched up to May Otis Blackburn and told her firmly that he was quitting the divine order of the royal arms of the Great Eleven and taking his wife with him. May Otis Blackburn simply shook her head and smiled. Quitting was not an option. Not while he still had even a dime left to contribute to the cause. Next, the police close in on May Otis Blackburn. Now, back to the Blackburn cult. In early August 1927, former millionaire Clifford Darby told May Blackburn that he was leaving the cult. But she politely disagreed. May told Clifford, God still has a purpose for you here. She told him he could take a break from cult activities, but that God would not allow him to leave permanently. Samuel Fort writes in Cult of the Great Eleven that Dabney stepped down from his post as president and prepared to admit to his family that he was wrong about the Blackburn cult, that he'd been a fool, that he was broke. Yet when May ordered him to stay, he did. After three years under May's influence, Clifford likely still wondered if her prophecies were genuine. Even if May was completely full of baloney, she was frightening. After all, even the mob had been afraid to come after her, after the mysterious disappearance of Ruth's former husband, Samuel Rizzio. What chance did he have if she ordered harm to come to him or his family? Miserable and broke, the Dabneys remained. Then, on New Year's Day in 1928, May twisted the knife once more. She summoned the Dabneys to her side and told them she knew about Clifford's one remaining oil lease. May strictly required that cult members donate all of their income to the cult. She informed Clifford and his wife Alice that a divine concord required the Dabneys to sign the lease over to May. This was another of the many ways May used the term concord. In this case, it meant a command directly from heavenly sources. Clifford resisted for a moment. May replied, Refuse me, and death will surely come upon you. Looking at Alice, she added, And perhaps you too, dear. Clifford signed over the lease, and with it, any hope of escaping May's grasp. But Dabney wasn't the only one unhappy. The colony was restless. It was February 1928 and had been nearly two years since May promised the end of the Old World and the beginning of the Divine Orders era on Earth. Instead, her followers were still living in rough-hewn cabins in Simi Valley, eating only what May deemed acceptable and turning over all their income. There was a brief insurgency within the cult in March of 1928. Many of the cultists were attracted to the New Thought Movement, a Christian-inspired cult popular at the time. 
This group felt that May's mystical gibberish about the Great Eleven was just too occult. They craved a more devoutly Christian organization. And Clifford Dabney was just the man to give it to them. He took the remarkable step of founding a new, separate cult, along with cult members Jeanette Monroe Scheuer, Gail Conde Banks, Mary Teresa Stewart, and Flora M. Dingman. This new cult, registered as a nonprofit organization, was called the Church of the Divine Science of Joshua, the Branch, the Headstone of the Corner. It was incorporated on March 29, 1928. You might expect that May would be furious at this fragmentation in her ranks, but you'd be wrong. Not only did she welcome the founding of the Divine Science of Joshua, she gave it space in her headquarters in Hollywood. May knew that reacting negatively to this rebellion in her ranks would only strengthen it. But if she calmly accepted the evolution of her cult, she could keep the new branch organization under her thumb. She could prevent the new thought adherents from leaving her for an outside rival, and she could retain access, of course, to her followers' incomes. Her plan worked. The divine science of Joshua ended up becoming an offshoot of the cult of the Great Eleven. In fact, a total of 74 followers became active members of both cults, but unfortunately for May and Ruth, the cult schism wasn't enough to squelch their followers' discontent. As always, when people are unhappy, gossip spreads rapidly. Willa's death was originally concealed from the cultists, but as the order began to disintegrate, the word got out that the Rhodes were living with their daughter's decomposing body. Gossip also spread about Frances Turner, the woman who had been broiled alive in an oven as May tried to resurrect her. Finally, rumors started about Sammy Rizzio, Ruth's husband who disappeared after May forced him to conduct a death ceremony on the beach after striking Ruth. Members were becoming more and more certain that something was rotten at the heart of the Blackburn cult. And Clifford's new cult didn't make him any happier than the old one had. He found himself still under May's control and wanted out, this time for good. Then, in 1928, an uncle approached Clifford with an idea to solve his problem. He promised Clifford $75,000 to press charges against May and see her jailed. Clifford decided to take the deal. He hoped after May was thrown in prison that he could recoup some of his losses by suing to seize the land and property he'd purchased for the order. And he wasn't the only one plotting a departure. Rebellion within May's ranks was reaching a fever pitch. Martha and William Rhodes had become distant from May, angry that she had so far failed to raise their daughter from the dead. A cult member named Evelyn Whitmore departed the cult, taking several unnamed members with her and moved to Missouri. May needed a distraction to keep her remaining followers in line. So, in September of 1928, May ordered nine cultists to trek across the Mojave Desert in the company of two mules. This journey was another divine concord meant as an allegory for escaping the jaws of death and the biblical victory of David over Goliath. The mules, men, and two support vehicles set off for a 500-mile, two-week round trip. On May's orders, they would visit Stovepipe Wells, a watering hole in Death Valley. We do know that the humans and mules survived the journey. But after their return, however, the story gets murkier. Newspaper coverage of the cult claims that there was a ceremony marking their return, 
in which an orgy took place, and the exhausted mules were sacrificed. Granted, newspapers sold more copies when they sensationalized the cult boom, and May was a known germaphobe, so it's unlikely an orgy ever took place. But there's no official record on how the mules fared. The cult's activities remain bizarre and incomprehensible into 1929. That summer, May told William Rhodes to take a body-sized box up to Big Bear Lake and bury it. She ordered him not to look at what was inside, and fearing what would happen if he did, Rhodes obeyed. Clifford, on the other hand, was no longer afraid of May. He was angry, and he was finally ready to get even. In July 1929, he and Alice formally withdrew from the cult. It wasn't the first time they'd left the cult, but it was the first time they didn't let May pull them back in. Next, Dabney filed five separate civil lawsuits. Through these lawsuits, Dabney sought to reclaim the cult's property in Simi Valley, which he had purchased, as well as receive repayment for cult members' debts to him personally. As his civil suits wound through the court system, Clifford Dabney filed a criminal complaint with the LAPD's Bunko Squad, a now-defunct department that looked into confidence crimes, or con jobs. In filing his complaint, Dabney had to confess he'd allowed May to take $21,000 of his money, an $18,000 oil lease, and $7,600 in royalty income, a total of $46,600, over half a million dollars today. The Bunko officers were amused, but not optimistic about the chances of recovering Clifford and Alice's funds. If Clifford had given his money freely, which he admittedly had, it wasn't clear if May had committed any crimes. The DA's office started poking around the cult's business. They found little until the 1st of October, 1929, when an anonymous tip urged them to look into the death of Francis Turner. It seemed as though another cult member was secretly supportive of Clifford's quest to put May in jail. Then, a few weeks later, another anonymous tip came in. This one led the police to the Rhodes home at 1094 Marco Place in Venice. William Rhodes had never been the religious one in the family. It was Martha who pushed for involvement in the Christian science movement and insisted they follow May Otis Blackburn. William, although he'd been a loyal cultist for years, must have been relieved on some level when, on October 5th, Martha opened up the door to find the police standing on their stoop. After a little coaxing, Martha told the cops everything about her daughter's death. The police called a homicide squad, who were quick to excavate the crypt. William helped in this effort, providing the detectives with his tools. He was eager to be done with this grim saga, tired of living above a rotting corpse. The homicide detectives opened Willa's copper-lined casket to find it full of seawater, which seeped in through the damp soil of the cellar floor. But Willa wasn't rotting and fetid, as one might expect of a corpse so long dead. On the outside, at least, Martha's makeshift embalming ritual was still working remarkably well. The girl did not look quite lifelike, especially as damp and pale as she was. But she didn't look dead, either. She looked like a porcelain doll. Word of the gruesome scene spread quickly. By the time the body was exhumed, reporters had gathered outside the cottage, trying to get a glimpse at the mummified corpse. Newspaper coverage of this disturbing incident created a frenzy of interest in the Blackburn cult's alleged crimes. 
Between Clifford's lawsuits and the Bunko Squad's criminal investigation, May was in real trouble. She retained an attorney. But all attorney Thomas Cochran could really do for his new client was advise her to turn herself in and cooperate with the law. On October 6, 1929, both May and Ruth did just that. Bail was set at $10,000 each. But from this point onward, the investigation stalled. Largely because much as May's followers wanted to cooperate with the investigation, most of them were not terribly bright. William Rhodes tried to lead police to the body-sized box he buried at Big Bear Lake, but he couldn't find it. Ward Sitton Blackburn, May's husband, was also happy to cooperate, but he spent his interview ranting about inanities like traffic and rainwater collection. For the next several days, the only thing the investigation uncovered was an assortment of puppy bones. On October 16th, the DA's office dropped three charges against May and released Ruth entirely. But on December 4th, May was arraigned for 10 counts of grand theft. A week later, she pled not guilty on all 10 counts. May's trial began in January of 1930 and ran for seven weeks. May's defense was twofold. First, that she had run a church, not a cult. Second, that Dabney had willingly donated his money to that church. Giving freely to a church is not a crime. Neither is a church's acceptance of a large donation. The jury didn't buy it. On March 2, 1930, May was convicted of eight counts of grand theft. She was ordered to pay restitution of $30,000 to Clifford Dabney and sentenced to 14 years per count in San Quentin Penitentiary. Surprisingly, after May went to jail, the cult did begin making restitution payments to Clifford. He even got the $18,000 oil lease back. But May's attorney, Thomas Cochran, appealed May's conviction. On November 30, 1931, the California Supreme Court sided with her. May went free. Nobody ever answered for the death of Francis Turner, the disappearance of Sammy Rizzio, or any of the other threats, kidnappings, cruelties, and disappearances associated with the Blackburn cult. But the damage was already done. The divine order of the Great Eleven disintegrated after May's release. She continued preaching to a handful of loyalists for the next 20 years, but never again attained the power she'd once enjoyed. On June 17, 1951, May died of heart failure at age 70. Ruth survived until 1978, when she died at the ripe old age of 87. For the rest of her life, Ruth continued to publish bizarre religious pamphlets about her mother's theology. It appears at least one person remained a true believer to the end. As we close out this episode, we want to give a special thanks to Samuel Fort, the author of Cult of the Great Eleven. His extensive reporting on the Blackburn cult was critical to the making of this episode. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back with a new episode next Tuesday. You can find more episodes of Cults as well as other podcast shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. 
We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Cults is written by Yelena War and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.